I want to try something new. I want to talk for a while on a topic, basically extemporaneously. As previously in this space, I've been reading uh, pre-written essays, which, uh, thanks for the feedback, some people really enjoyed, some people uh, had trouble following them. I'm taking it all into account, and I'm hoping that um, you'll continue to give me feedback, you'll continue listening, um, you'll continue uh, sharing and subscribing, so that I can uh, adjust this format and find something that really uh, benefits people, that people really enjoy. Anyway... I want to talk about something new this evening, uh, something that I was thinking about a lot this past Shabbos, Shabbos Bereshis. And that idea is the idea of holiness. Holiness, or as we call it in the holy tongue, Kedusha, sanctity, is a vital idea to understand. And I actually think, after a lot of consideration, that a lot of the problem with our default approach to Judaism has to do with our lack of appreciation of Kedusha our lack of appreciation of holiness, what the term means, and why it's so important, and why it's not emphasized enough, even among people who get a Jewish education, which unfortunately is uh, not a huge percentage of the American Jewish population, but even among that percentage, I think that the idea of sanctity, the idea of holiness, is vitally, vitally important. So we read the beginning of the Torah this week, and the Torah begins, of course, famously with, with the word Bereshis, usually translated as in the beginning. The translation is controversial, it's not for now, but there's different ways to translate the word in the beginning is the one thing that it can't be, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, as Rashi says, and uh, you can go check the commentaries all at the beginning of the Torah, and you'll have a great time. The Torah begins with Bereshis, and the famous question is, why does the Torah begin with the letter Bez, or Bet, which is the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet? The first letter of the Hebrew alphabet is, of course, Aleph. Aleph being the first letter, of course, is in some sense the highest letter, the most primary letter. And the Torah starts off on the second foot. The Torah starts with a Bez, it starts in the second thing. And there are many different answers to this question. There's answers at the simple level. There's an answer the Talmud gives. There's uh, Kabbalistic answers to this question. There's answers at all different sorts of levels. But this week, I, I relearned the Lubavitcher Rebbe's answer to this question. And to boil it down to a single point, the Rebbe says that the reason the Torah starts with the Beis is because the study of Torah, the study of Jewish wisdom, Jewish education, learning the wisdom of God, is really only ever the second step. That's why it starts with the second letter. The Torah that we learn fundamentally starts at the second step, because all of our Torah learning has to be prefaced with a sense that the Torah is God's Torah. All of our study, all of our engaging of our intellect, and so to speak, our our spiritual faculties in trying to comprehend and trying to bring Judaism into our lives. All of it has to start with an acknowledgement in faith that the Torah is God's. This is profoundly connected to the idea of Kedusha, the idea of holiness. Why? Because the intellect rebels against holiness. You know, the Musar approach to Judaism, the approach to Judaism that focuses on ethics, the approach to Judaism that reminds some people of uh, Stoicism, the Stoic philosophers, 
talks about the dominion of the mind over the heart and the way that the the mind and the heart are in a constant war with one another and if we want to retain control if we want to live uh, uh, lives of meaning and in truth uh, if you really get down to the bottom of it even if we want to be able to assess our own lives and the world around us objectively in other words if we actually want to get beyond our biases escape our 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 internal uh, epistemic bubbles to truly know things then the mind has to control the heart according to Musser because we are all born with inherent biases as the as the the, the weaknesses of our body and of our animal nature. We desire things, we naturally lack things, and uh, these desires, of course, uh, skew our perception, right? The same way that the that Jewish law treats so seriously any form of bribe that's given to a judge. We say that even the slightest bribe, a very, very slight bribe from years before, that wasn't even given as a bribe, but even maybe just given as a gift, can predispose the judge to treat that person favorably. So if we can be bribed by others so easily and across the years, how much more so are we bribed by our own animal nature, bribed by our own desires, the desires of our hearts? So the approach of Musar is to say that the mind has to control the heart. We have to uh, rein in these wild desires. We have to uh, attain a certain uh, equilibrium and an equanimity. We have to attain a certain uh, coldness towards emotion. And only then can we really pursue a meaningful uh, life in an orderly fashion in the service of God. The problem with this approach is that it says that the intellect ruling over the emotions is itself an inherent moral good. Hasidus is far more skeptical of the intellect. Hasidus says that the mind is fundamentally problematic, and the problem of the mind is that the mind and holiness are opposites. There is no room for holiness in a mind. After all, God dwells only in a place of bittel, in a place of nullification. God dwells in emptiness, in empty vessels. And the mind is essentially non-empty. I don't mean that we constantly think thoughts or that we're always thinking, although that may also be true. What I mean is that to think, by definition, the essence of thinking, the act of thinking, by being what it is, is contrary to self-nullification, to being nothing, and is contrary to the idea of holiness. Because after all, to think, to use your mind, to understand, is to see how things fit together. It's to see that two and two fit together within four, and therefore equal it when summed. It's to see the way a ledger is balanced, or the way that a subtle addition to a piece of art will really complete the aesthetic and balances out the view of the art. It tells us that if we speak a certain word at a certain time, this will achieve a certain result in a conversation. 
and so on and so forth in every pursuit that we use our minds for. Our minds tell us how things fit together, finds the equalities between things. That's the ratiocinative intellect is the fancy word for it. The intellect is a clearinghouse for ratios, for the relationships, the proportions, and the balances between things. What else does a judge on a base din do if not weigh and measure actions against a principle, against a law, and determine whether the law has been upheld or has been violated? The mind is constantly assessing how these things fit together. The problem is that holiness is the exact opposite of things fitting together. Holiness is the idea that things were never apart in the first place. Or to put it differently, for something to be sacred, it has to be set apart from other things. If there were some way to make worldly intellect equal the Torah, for example, the Torah could not then possibly be holy. What sets it apart? What makes it special? It is merely the sum or the equivalent or some kind of extrapolation from worldly realities. The entire idea of holiness in modernity persists actually under a different name, which we call individuality, true individuality. The idea that no matter how much we understand a person, no matter how deeply we dig into them and we dig into their nature, ultimately there is something there that only they know and that we cannot judge. There is something within them that is ultimately truly private and uniquely theirs as opposed to ours. This is something that in more civilized ages is called a soul. It's the idea of a self, and a self, once you take away all of its media, all of the ways by which it communicates, once you take away its actions and its speech and even its thought, the self that is left over is holy. It is irreducible to anything else. It is unique in the deepest sense of the word, not unique by some kind of accident. We're not saying it's one of a kind because it's in my house as opposed to something else which is in someone else's house. We are saying it is inherently one of a kind, that if I go through everything else that exists and try and use those things to express this single individual, I will inevitably fail. That is called holiness. That is called something that is set apart. To connect to holiness, then, cannot be in an intellectual way. It is not fitting things together that allows us to reach holiness. The holiness that we attain when we wrap tefillin, or light Shabbos candles, or give tzedakah, that holiness that we access is not accessed as a sum or as an equivalence of some kind of other action. In other words, it is not a sum of meanings. It is not that this is a ritual in some particular context or anything like that that makes the tefillin holy. 
that is a contradiction in terms. That would be saying that the separateness, the uniqueness of the tefillin, is defined by its relation to other things. In which case, how unique is it really? Its uniqueness arises from other things. It's not truly kadosh muvdal. It's not truly sanctified and separate. The way we access holiness when we wrap tefillin is by realizing that the tefillin and the holiness are one in a way that cannot be manipulated, in a way that cannot be achieved piecemeal, in a way that cannot be added up to or reached by any kind of process because all processes are ratiocinative, all processes are intellectual, all processes say that if I go from step one to step two to step three, it will yield the following result. But there is no process whereby tefillin become holy. They are holy the moment they become tefillin because that's what tefillin are. And the same is true of the Torah and everything else that has holiness. The problem then for educated Jews trying to appreciate Judaism is that there is no aspect of Judaism which they believe cannot be integrated intellectually, piecemeal, into their already pre-existing lives. In other words, there is no aspect of Judaism which cannot be defined in terms that are extrinsic to Judaism itself. For example, a Jew believes in the Torah. But if the Jew doesn't believe the Torah is holy, then he believes that the Torah is simply another work of intellect, is something else that can be understood. We're not saying the Jew rebels against the Torah, God forbid, or says that the Torah is not the work on which he bases his life. It's more subtle than that. You can base your whole life on the Torah, because the Torah is the smartest or the best or the most insightful work in the world. But it's not a work of holiness. If it was holy, then its insightfulness and its intelligence and its guide for your life would be irrelevant. You would study the Torah because it is inherently holy. You would place the Aleph before the Bays. You would make sure to make the blessing on the Torah before you learned it. You would acknowledge that it is one with the Creator, and that's what makes it worth studying. That's what makes it what it is. But the problem that we see by Torah, that it's approached as an intellectual work, that its character and its uh, qualities are not seen as holy, but rather as mundane, as expressible in other terms, this problem is in all aspects of Judaism today. We make the same error when we say that a Jew is chosen from among other people and the Jew is ultimately reducible to other people. True, we have a unique mission. And anyone who wants to acquire the mission and take the mission upon themselves can become a Jew. But we today tend to believe that it is the mission itself which somehow makes them Jewish, rather than a conferring of holiness, an intangible, a Jewish soul that is given to them from above. So a Jew is really just like anyone else, except that he's gone through some kind of process. A process that makes sense. A process that leads from non-Jew to Jew.
The exact same problem exists, unfortunately, with God. The God of Judaism is seen as equivalent, God forbid, to gods of other religions, gods of other faiths. Don't they have wisdom? Don't they have their own approaches to Hashem? True, we would never worship one of their other gods. We believe that the God of Judaism is best, but he is best in some sort of explicable way. He is best because he fulfills some kind of need. He's best because he fits into my web of meanings in the most pleasing way, or the way that is most difficult for me to reject. I don't worship him because he's holy, because he is God, one, alone, totally transcendent of my concerns. Rather, I worship him because of the way he impacts my concerns. And if we want Judaism to somehow be able to uh, rescue us, or to redeem us from our mundane lives, from our lives lived in uh, darkness, our lives lived in uh, physicality and the, uh, the yearnings of our own hearts, it's not enough just to rule over our hearts with our minds. It's not enough just to learn Torah, to start with the Bez. You have to remember the Aleph. If we want to be transformed, if we want the Torah to really be a potion of life rather than a poison of death, then the Torah has to be more than just a book of intellect. It has to be more than about just conquering our own hearts. Because as long as we think about the Torah from a perspective of intellect, from a perspective of understanding, we will inevitably be trying to fit the Torah into our reality, rather than ourselves into the Torah's reality, which is really what God wants and what he's waiting for.